The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show. A special shout-out to Yoshiko Dart. I am very excited about the show today. I really, really am because I think this is such an important topic and often forgotten in the disability community. Um, We have two wonderful guests today. We have Dr. Lisa Scott, the Director of Clinical Education, School of Communication Science and Disorders at Florida State University, and John Williams, well-known in the disability community, who is an author and producer. So, Lisa and John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Very you for inviting me. Um, I want to talk about this. As I said, I think it's so important. And, Lisa, I'm going to start with you. I was very impressed with your background, um, very stellar, very impressive. What got you interested in this disorder of stuttering? Um, it was actually by accident. First of all, thank you for your kind words. Um, it was truly an accident. My very first job was working in the public schools, and stuttering tends to be a low incidence disorder. So out of all the kids on your caseload, you might have one child who stutters out of maybe 60 kids. Um, and that was true my first year that I was working there. And then the second year, I had three kids. And then the third year of my career, I had 11 children who stuttered on my caseload. And so I had to get really good really fast at trying to help these kiddos out because it was just a, a really growing population for me. And so I called on my mentor from my university program, and he came out and helped me out. And it just sort of snowballed from there. Wow. That is amazing because I'm very big on education. I do a lot of work with high school students with disabilities, and it is amazing how these things end up uh, coming around each other. Um, And I'm sure that, as you said, any student with a stuttering disorder, it stands out and sometimes needs so much support, which brings me to John, uh, who I've known for quite a while. John, how are you? I'm fine, Joey. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, John, I wondered if you would share with our listeners the impact of stuttering on your own life. As you know, I'm living with epilepsy. It seems all of us in the disability community have something that has been a major impact on our life, but certainly that we are not ashamed of. Um, but what impact has this had on your life, John? You know, it's made me try harder. It's made me more sensitive to the needs of people with different different disabilities. And um, I, it's uh, made me a lot more sensitive to uh, 
helping people address the needs that they need. Okay, I had it was interesting because um, I don't know if Dr. Scott will agree with this, but I didn't start to stutter until I was eight years old, and I was told I've been told by um, psychologists and speech therapists that my main cause was uh, I was born left-handed. My second grade year at a public school, I had a teacher who wanted me to change from writing left-handed to right-handed, and she used to do all kinds of stupid things to make me do that. Well, one day, it was on Valentine's Day, uh, I was writing with my left hand, and she came charging down the aisle. I remember her name, Mrs. Griffith. She came charging down the aisle with this steel ruler in her hand, yanked the pencil out of my hand, and cracked my knuckles and risked with the steel ruler until they stood open. And it was such a shock to me that shortly after that I got the, after that experience I got the shingles and that's when I started to stutter. But, uh... Whoa! Where did this teacher come from? That is a <laughs> terrible story! Yeah, this happened in 1952. Wow. Wow. Let me ask you a question, Dr. Scott. How is that, how is that connected? Um, I think that sometimes we do see children who've had a traumatic experience like that. There's really no research that would support, you know, that traumatic experiences cause stuttering, but I certainly am a big believer that a child's temperament, where one child might have been able to, you know, tolerate being treated like that, unfortunately, and not started stuttering for other children their temperaments are sensitive enough that it's that's enough to sort of tip them over the edge and um really cause some damage and so i think it just depends individually on the person as far as you know what kinds of things are trigger points for them um there's a lot of factors that we know contribute to the development of stuttering but not any one of those factors will necessarily, you know, you can load the gun, but you, not any one of them are going to pull the trigger. And so it may very well have been for John, his gun was loaded, and that was the, that was the event that pulled the trigger for him. Hmm. That's really terrible. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Just a little note on that. As you know, John, I'm the chair of the board of the American Association of People with Disabilities. Right. And this year... I made bullying students with disabilities one of our platforms, which is to stop it. Why I'm bringing that up, it's amazing when I ask the students why they don't tell their teachers that one of the reasons is that often the teacher is the bully, whereas in your case it sounded like the teacher was the monster. Um, but, you know, whatever the reason that is, if it started right after that, it somehow was connected there's no doubt about that now when you got older as you grew up then how was it an impact on your life john well it was interesting because i had to deal with so many different situations um in grade school for example there was i had classmates whose parents wouldn't let them play with me because i stuttered because back then stuttering was not uh to be something that was very terrible, something that could be contagious. Um, and it was thought that if you stuttered, you had 
something wrong with you. So uh, that was quite an adjustment for me to make. In high school, I had teachers who, once they heard me stuttered, would not call me all year. Uh, and this was especially true in my junior and senior years, uh, especially when I started interested, getting interested in dating. I couldn't get dates. Um, so it left me very bitter um, because I, I was, I, I didn't feel as though I was part of the crowd. Okay. Also, as I was the only one in my high school, as far as I knew, at St. Mary's who stuttered. Um, mm-hmm. And we had about 400 students uh, at St. Mary's High School. And as far as I knew, I was the only one who, who stuttered. Stuttering also left me very suspicious of people in a authority, which is a good trait to have when you when you're a reporter. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it it's it's always left me very suspicious about uh, people who make people in authority who make decisions that impact the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Right, I agree with you. Um, you know, as I said earlier, uh, Lisa. Stuttering is a complex disorder. Once I read all your information, I could not believe that it affects more than 68 million people worldwide. So why, in our own community, is that not given more attention? Well, I think there's several reasons for that. Um, One is that stuttering tends to be an invisible disability. And you mentioned that you have epilepsy. I'm sure you experience the same sort of thing. It's, It's not this obvious problem and for a person who stutters it's not an obvious problem typically until they open their mouths um, and so it a lot of times will catch people by surprise um, another thing is I think that there are many accomplished people who stutter who don't consider themselves as having a disability because they've been able to you know go into careers and and make choices and not let the stuttering make choices for them and so I think there are some people who stutter who would maybe object to, to being viewed as having a disability. And then I also think that there are other people who stutter for whom it very clearly is a disability. I mean, I, I work with clients every day who are really struggling with their stuttering and all of the things that it, all of the impact it has on their life, like John described. But for those individuals, they choose to remain silent because they're choosing to to bear that on their own. And so I, I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Let me make uh, this statement. I never considered myself, my stuttering to be a disability, though others have. And uh, I remember I went to college on a scholarship, and my last, the second part of my junior year and all my senior year, I took a lot of job interviews, and everyone, everyone said to me, you've got excellent academic background, you can write well, but because you stutter, we're not going to hire you. Now, Joyce, you know, we've known each other a long time. I've been a writer most of my life, 
And what's interesting is I never had an editor tell me I couldn't. I never had an editor tell me he or she would not give me an assignment because of my stuttering. And I've interviewed a lot of famous people. Um, one thing that was interesting too, uh, in 2000 or 2001, Asher gave me the Charles Van Riper Lifetime Achievement Award. And what was interesting to me was the number of emails that I got back there, back then, from people who stutter who told me that I was making life tougher for them because I was so visible, and they didn't like that. See, let me just tell you why I consider this a disability, and, and you need to know this first. Disability is not bad to me. Remember, I to me, disability is disability culture. I have epilepsy, but I'm not ashamed that I have epilepsy, and it too is a disorder. But when something impacts your life in some way, um, as this does, and I believe it does, because in Canada, you know, where I employ people with disabilities, uh, one of the people that I placed, that was his disability, stuttering, because it did impact his ability to communicate, his ability to get hired uh, or get a job. But I would agree with you that uh, it has a major impact on employment, which is terrible. You know, like in your case, You've done so much. I know you've interviewed former presidents. You've interviewed a lot of people in the disability community. But you still have a voice in the community, but it's mainly through writing, wouldn't you say? Right. Right. So I want to tell you about my employee, what happened to my employee. No matter where this person went, since he went on the interview, he would not get a job. I don't know, Lisa, do you find that with a lot of the people you work with, that they have a hard time gaining employment? Um, yes, and, and one of the things that we talk about in therapy specifically is strategies for talking with employers about stuttering and educating employers so that they can understand how stuttering may or may not impact that employee on the job because I think that's critical. People will... Well, you know, people who are interviewing will come in with a preconceived notion um, that's completely inaccurate. Um, but if the person who's being interviewed doesn't do anything to counteract that, um, it doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my employee could not get a job anywhere until I hired him at Bender of Canada. But when I hire you, I pay the benefits, the salary. You go on a six-month subcontract. If at the end of six months you perform well, then you then move to that company. And this person was really smart, excellent background. I hired him. They, they said, okay, we'll give this a try. They put him on assignment, and things weren't going well. I couldn't figure out why. And one day I went and I met with him, and guess what? His boss would not talk to him. His boss would not communicate with him because they said it was too hard. So obviously mm. it was pure discrimination, and, and they did not want to keep him. But it was pure discrimination, and I don't know. I've always wondered why – I'll ask you this, Dr. Smith. Why do you think people feel like that? Um, 
I think that because stuttering, even though it's seen in lots of individuals worldwide, the number of opportunities that a person has to actually meet someone who stutters is fairly low in your lifetime, unless you're someone like me who's kind of obsessed with it. Um, And so I think that it catches people by surprise, and they don't always know what to do, and so they avoid. Um, They avoid talking with the person who stutters about their stuttering. Um, They avoid communicating with them because they think it takes too long. Instead of trying to find out what can I do to be as good a communication partner as possible and then working from there. Um, and so I think, you know, some of it is fear. Some of it is just being rude. Um, some of it is just not knowing how to handle it. I think that there's a lot of people who are afraid that they're going to hurt the person who stutters feelings or they're going to say something wrong and make it worse when really then it becomes this big invisible elephant in the room that's affecting everybody's behavior, that if, if any one of the people involved would just talk about it, um, it could probably really solve some, some problems fairly quickly. You know, I had some really good advice given to me when I was in high school by a speech therapist named John Seaman. And he said to me, John, don't let your stuttering control you. You control it. Exactly. And I never... I didn't understand that at the time. It, it took me a couple of years. But once I did, uh, then things started to change for me. Um, there was a time in my life in which I blamed every failure, every failure on my stuttering without blaming, without really looking at myself and saying, well, how come I'm, why am I not succeeding? And then I finally had to realize that it wasn't my stuttering that was uh, my worst enemy. It was my was myself. But one of the things I can tell you, um, whenever I've worked for somebody full time, I've always risen within a very short time faster than most. Most people have who were in the jobs five or ten years. And I always felt that because I started, I had to prove that I could I could do the job. And in 99% of the situations, I did. Well, I have no doubt. I have no doubt about that. You know what it reminds me of, Dr. Scott? It reminds me of... I hire people across the board. You know, I'm, I'm like the civil rights leader. I'm on a campaign, as John knows, and a crusade for employment because Americans with disabilities have the highest unemployment of any other minority group. Mm-hmm. But what this reminds me of is when I hire people from the deaf culture. Of course, you know, if you cannot communicate using sign language or there be an interpreter, you know, it may be difficult and will be difficult for you to communicate. And what I tell, what I have found is rather than the person being patient and saying, could you write it down? Could you email me? Could you tell me, you know, in some other format? They pretend. In other words, they pretend they know what the person said. Mm-hmm. They, they do not say, would you repeat that? And I guess it's for the same reason. The only thing I can ever figure out is 
being impatient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but one message I would have to people who do stutter is to never go along with that. Because when I interviewed these deaf students from Gallaudet, uh, Gallaudet, I said, why do you pretend that you do understand when you too do not understand? Mm-hmm. And their answer was because they don't want the person to think they're stupid. Mm-hmm. Right. So advice I would give to someone who stutters is don't settle. You know, if you have a job, and you feel the person isn't communicating with you, say, hold on a minute, I want to make sure you understand. Mm -hmm. Because if you just become passive, then you're not going to make it anyway. I mean, what do you think about that? I I agree with that 100% because um, what that does long term, it may solve the problem for the minute that you're interacting with this person and, and it gets the interaction over with and you walk away and you think, well, they didn't really get what I wanted to say or they don't really understand, but at least I'm through it. But what happens over time is when you allow yourself not to be a part of your own conversation, it really starts to affect your self-esteem. And that's what John was just talking about, about don't let your stuttering become bigger than you. When you are allowing your stuttering to dictate how your conversations are going to go, um, and you're doing things on the basis of what's easy. You know, many people who are fluent speakers have difficult conversations every day, um, and I think that it just it takes away from your self-esteem so much when you do that over time. And, it, you know, it seems like this easy fix, and it feels really good momentarily to avoid having to say something that's really hard to get out. But, man, when you start letting other people change your message, you right. really are, are letting other people change not only how they see you, but how you see yourself. And that's a very slippery slope. You know, let me tell you one of the things that I've done when I've been employed full-time. I've uh, developed a list of famous people who stuttered throughout the ages, and I've always put it up on someplace where it can be seen and when people walk in, I've always had at the top famous people who stutter, and that, that includes kings, kings, diplomats, writers, actors, singers, and that that kind of throws people back. But then they look at it and they say, "Hmm, I didn't know that," and that that's made my life easier. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I want to tell you that I was asked by Jenny Thornburg, who John knows, and who, of course, was married is married to Dick Thornburg, former governor of Pennsylvania, but also attorney general to former President Bush, who I refer to as Papa Bush, when the ADA was signed. He was the uh, attorney general of the United States. His wife, her work she does for us at AAPD is going into churches, synagogues, mosques, making them accessible to people who want to worship of all religions and faiths. Many years ago, before I was involved with AAPD, she asked me to speak at the Pittsburgh Theological uh, Center when they were doing one of their conferences. And again, these were people from all faiths, from the 
you know, Jewish faith, Islam, whatever it was, they were all present. And so when I went to speak, I said, I want to ask you one question. If I told you I have a minister or a rabbi for you, but that person was a person who stutters, would you bring them aboard? And, of course, they're saying, well, you know, most likely no, because, you know, a sermon, you've got to get it going, or or a teaching session at a synagogue, you've got to get it going. And I said, okay, that's interesting, because both religions, for example, Jewish and Christian, believe in the Old Testament, and remember Moses, who was chosen as the person to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. The reason he said he would not be able to do this is because of his speech impediment. Interesting, I said, that you feel different than him. And I've always felt that was amazing, you know, that here's a biblical figure that said, I am slow of speech and had stammering lips. And uh, yet... A, the people in the church would not choose or synagogue someone who stuttered to lead them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I actually know, I know men who uh, stutter, who when they were younger, these are Catholic men, thought they wanted to be a priest and they all were turned down. Be, they were denied an entrance in to the seminary, they say, because of this stuttering. Oh, that is shameful. That's terrible. I, I guess. That, that is absolutely so terrible. Well, speaking of that, something I wanted to talk to you about, Lisa, is something I deal with for 12 years now. I've done volunteer work. It's called the Bender Leadership Academy, where I work with high school students with disabilities about being an ambassador, leadership, how to get a job, and how to stand up against bullying because students with disabilities are really savagely bullied. I have lost some of them to what is known as bully-side, which is, of course, suicide as a result of bullying. How would you suggest someone cope with stuttering if they are in middle school or high school when it comes to bullying? Well, that's a really complex question, Um, and as you know, there's really no easy answer, unfortunately. Um, My first recommendation is um, for speech therapy to be addressing handling bullying and handling assertiveness. Um, you know, what we were talking about earlier with letting other people finish your message or, or substitute in words that aren't yours, um, that's not an extreme like bullying, but that's kind of where some of that can start. If you as, as a speaker are not willing to be assertive for yourself and say, wait a minute, that's not my message, then it becomes easier to be more passive in other situations as well. And I think that, um, you know, one thing that's, that I think is a common misconception about stuttering therapy is that we only work on what the person is doing with their mouth to try to stop the stuttering or minimize the stuttering. And in fact, 
Stuttering therapy needs to be much more than that. And being able to work on assertiveness skills, how do you respond to someone when they make a negative comment about your speech or they ask a question and other kids laugh? What do you do about that? Or how do you handle yourself in that situation? Because um, people will bully folks that they see as not having much power. And so part of part of what you need to learn um, is how to keep your power and not give your power away. And um, so there's a piece of it that's addressed in therapy. I think there's a piece of it that needs to be addressed with parents. Um, I think being open and talking openly about stuttering with other people is a good strategy as well. We find that when kids will make a presentation or educate their peers, that they tend to have more positive experiences and less bullying. Um, but, you know, when you're in middle school, the last thing you want to do is call attention to yourself. So it's a really tricky age where, you know, we really want to push kids to get out there and educate others and stand up for themselves when really, you know, developmentally, everybody at that age is all about just trying to fade into the crowd <laughs> um, and try, trying not to stand out. So it's a really tricky proposition. I can tell you, <laughs> when I was in grade school, I had a lot of fist fights with uh, other students. and I lost more fights than I won, but uh, after a couple dozen, people started stopped making fun of me. I used to have kids come up to me and uh, right to my face, Laugh, oh, 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 oh. this is you talk, and I had to get so pissed off that my first reaction was a quick left hook, and I got into a lot of trouble, especially at traffic schools. I had a, I must have set a record for detentions, <laughs> but um, I learned to live with it. And um, I have never considered it to be a disability. I say it's it's the way I am. It's the way I speak. Um, and but um, I think really it's made me a better person because I am more sensitive to the needs of people who have needs. Uh, it makes me a good listener, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. I would, I would say that I observe that in my clients as well. Right. You know what? Ah, oh, these people that, you know, bully people like this. I don't know where this is coming from. It's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Lisa, I have a question I wanted to ask you. Many parents, I know they do this with children like me who have epilepsy, they will say, whatever you do when you're in school, don't tell anyone. Of course, if you don't tell anyone when you stutter, that means you probably would not be speaking. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to ask you, what do you think about parents that do that? Well, I think, you know, my experience with parents is they're always trying to act in the best interest of their child. And... They want to try to do what seems to, to make the most sense for right now. And, and it's really difficult for parents to watch their children go any, through anything that's painful. And 
sometimes, too, parents will sort of project, well, if that was me in that situation, I would feel X. Instead of checking out with their child, how, how do you want to handle that situation? You know, what do you think we ought to do in that situation? And so I'm a big proponent of what's called throwing the ball back. So instead of making a decision and thinking, oh, I'll talk to the teachers or I'll, you know, I'll say this or I'll tell my child not to talk about it or whatever, instead of doing that, say to the child, how would you like to handle this situation? Because it starts the child in motion towards um, making their own decisions and taking some responsibility for their speech and for their communication and, and really moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I did with my uh, two oldest children when they were in school, I used to go to their schools once a year and talk about disability and talk about stuttering and talk about other disabilities. And I always pointed out that there were people who had disabilities who made a significant impact on the world and that what they should look at is they should look at the, the individual and not just the, the disability. If they can't see beyond the, the individual's disability, they've got a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think, too, as a parent, we want to you know, keep our children from experiencing pain in the moment. Sometimes what we do, you know, instead of just looking at the moment, who do you want this child to be when they're 25, when they're 35? Do you want them standing up for themselves when you can't be there to do that for them? And if so, you have to think about, well, what can I do today to move them in that direction? And so part of it is engaging them in the process of, you know, would you like me to come speak to your class? Would you like to speak to your class? Should we sit down and talk with your teacher individually, just the two of us? You know, how would you like this to be handled? Um, because as parents, we're so used to trying to swoop in and fix the problem, and sometimes our absolute best intentions end up just promoting the problem and keeping things going and, and keeping kids silent. And if there's anything that I want people who stutter to do, it's to move towards talking instead of moving right. away from it. Right, I agree. I agree. And by the way, I always tell parents of children with epilepsy, please remember when you say, don't tell anyone you have epilepsy, or listen, try to limit what you say. Mm-hmm. You know what you're really saying is because there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So in no way, shape, or form would that make me, as a child with epilepsy, feel good if you were telling me, don't let anyone know you have this. Right, so exactly. Please, uh, Always remember that any parents listening to the show, when you're saying, oh, whatever you do, don't talk that much, you can't imagine how that's hurting in many ways. One, how would that make the person feel about this stuttering? Two is they're not going to get anywhere because they're not going to be assertive ever if you tell someone that, which leads me to before we close the show, um, and I'll start with you, Dr. Lisa Scott, if you had to leave one message with our listeners today, what would it be? Um, Stuttering is only as big as you let it be. And, you know, there are so many people who stutter who are powerful communicators, John being one example, a a wonderful example. And there are lots of fluent people in the world who are terrible communicators. 
So whether you're fluent or not does not influence what type of a communicator you are. And so being bigger than your stuttering and taking charge is just critical. And, and making sure that you know when you make a decision, I'm making this decision because this is what I decide, not what stuttering is deciding for me. Mm, yeah, that is such so good. How about you, John? What message would you like to leave with our listeners? I would say uh, if you stutter, don't let it control you. You control it. And if and to your listeners, I'd say don't rush. The life is short. Don't speak for the person who's who's in front of you and who's speaking. Let that person speak for, for himself. Right, because you will never really, really understand life and what's going on if you, in fact, are finishing sentences for other people. You, right. know, you have to be powerful. You have to be willing to speak up because just as Dr. Scott said, it isn't that you can't communicate. That isn't what it is. So you know, stand up, don't be ashamed, get back your muchness, and you be like me. I have epilepsy, but it's just part of me. But it is not decide what I do with my life. Exactly. Hey, Dr. Scott, I really appreciate you being on the show today and being with us. I think this is such an important topic, um, and I want to remind everyone, if you only heard part of the show, that you can download this show, all the shows on uh, for the past nine years on Voice America and at BenderConsult.com. That's BenderConsult.com are archived and you may download it, put it on your website, iPod, wherever you would like for others to hear. John, I so much appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It has been a joy. Thank really you has. very much. Thank you both. We're going to get ready to go to break. We have been talking to Dr. Lisa Scott and John Williams, and we'll be right back with our next guest, You are listening to Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. 
Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most, and by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show, and I am so excited about our next guest, Chris Norton with AT&T, who has something really important to all of us, very special to me, to talk about. But Chris, let's begin with you, how about sharing with our listeners a little bit about you and what you do at AT&T? Sure, sure. Hey, and Joyce, I'm real excited to be here. Thanks so much for the invite. Um, I am uh, AT&T's military talent attraction manager. So uh, for lack of a better description, I'm, quote, the guy at AT&T uh, charged with bringing military folks on board. And as far as I'm concerned, I have the, the best job uh, at the company, either talk to or talk about vets all day. Um, but pretty much I've got three pillars. Uh, first is to position us as an employer of choice within the, the military and veteran community. Uh, it's a combination of uh, marketing, partnership building, and positioning of our career options in front of uh, interested and qualified candidates. Um, it also provide, it includes providing tools through uh, for veterans who are in transition uh, that assist in their job search uh, along the lines of uh, occupational translator tools, so uh, your MOS or your AFSC, uh, help you figure out where that fits at AT&T, as well as a program we call Careers for Vets, which is uh, a job search advisor program where we partner uh, folks in transition uh, with uh, with military or former military members of our uh, own employee base, so our, our own veterans on board, uh, really to help with uh, translating what it's like to work at AT&T with what, what their experience might be in the military. Um, and uh, the, the second aspect of it, which is the bigger piece, is I train our recruiters and our hiring managers on uh, what the value of uh, veterans to AT&T is. You know, what, what's the, the business sense behind doing it, uh, as well as help them understand, you know, how, how do I read this resume? How do I relate to this person, and uh, what, what questions can I ask to have that quality dialogue with them? Um, and it's essentially an internal roadshow designed to help uh, with that translation and culture gap that's developed uh, as a result of the all-volunteer force. And then everything, you know, the, the, the final aspect is kind of the everything else category, sponsorships and uh, public relations and so on. Well, I have to say, first of all, kudos to AT&T for reaching out to the disability community as they have uh, on a very firm basis for a long time. I really, really commend the company for doing that. And here's an area that is very near and dear to my heart, veterans with disabilities. So, Chris, I'm really happy to hear that you're doing this. Um, I realize it's, you know, all veterans, but I know that it specifically includes veterans with disabilities. And what I always say to people, and I think I shared this with you, you have an individual that you don't know. You've never met them, but they're willing to go to Iraq or Afghanistan and fight for you, fight for your freedom, and may either be killed 
or come back with some type of disability, whether they saw action or they did not. How, then, can you allow this person to come back to the United States and not gain employment is absolutely beyond me. And, Chris, I wondered what advice you have for veterans who are seeking employment because, as I just stated, many, many, many face barriers to employment and even have ended up homeless because the experience they had whether it's doing network or whatever it was doing in the military, is not viewed as relevant in the business community. What, what, what advice do you have? Sure. Well, you know, the, the biggest challenge to overcome is that, that language and culture gap. Um, you know, on, on a professional level, and I'm an officer in the Army Reserve, uh, on a professional level, the, the all-volunteer force is fantastic. It gets us, you know, highly qualified, highly motivated uh, people to, to serve, which is great. Um, but when people do leave the service, it, it manifests itself as a huge hurdle, uh, simply because, you know, less than half a percent of the service age population these days wears a uniform. Um, and, and when you're when you've left service, when you've left service and you're trying to find work, uh, it's just very rare that you'll run into somebody that's walked a mile in your shoes. And that, that aspect right there goes a long way in terms of building relationship and figuring out uh, how somebody fits uh, as your teammate in a given company. Um, but with respect to you know, advice for veterans uh, with disabilities seeking employment, um, and I look at it this way. If you've had to overcome a physical mental or emotional disability, to me, that shows a mental toughness and adaptability that we value at AT&T. Uh, obviously, we, we, we've historically always reached out to the, the disabled community, um, but, but even more so near and dear to my heart is uh, disabled veterans. Um, on a personal level, you know, and, and you kind of hinted at this before, I know many veterans that have had sudden and disabling injuries uh, <clears throat> or, excuse me, an otherwise life-changing event. <laughs> only to recover and become remarkably successful. You know, it's important for, for uh, you know, folks with those disabilities understand that the challenges that you face as a result of them are really what make you strong. You know, that, that, that's a personal capability uh, and, and, frankly, gut check that uh, we value here at the company. Yes, I agree with you, and I hope all of you are listening that AT&T um, has not only reached out to the disability community, but as Chris is telling you, this is something very near and dear to his heart, which is employing veterans and veterans with disabilities. I agree with you. I mean, most people have, as you said, never walked in the person's shoes. They have no idea of what it takes to be in the military. And as you explained to me once, am I right about this? It doesn't matter whether you've been in combat. It still has, war still has an impact on you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't, war changes you no matter what. Uh, it's a abnormal environment no matter how you look at it. Um, and it's important to, you know, understand that it is going to change a person, uh, mainly for the better. I think, uh, you know, it's a test. Uh, it's a crucible unlike any other environment uh, to really challenge your capabilities and uh, really stretch yourself. Um, but, you know, obviously there are uh, other, other challenges that arise. So, you know, when, when I think back on, you know, what's helped me be successful 
uh, as a result of my military service, I think the number one thing that comes to mind is uh, being adaptable. Um, you know, I've been in the Army for 16, almost 17 years at this point, uh, and I, I've had a ton of different job functions. Uh, e- each one, you know, really, really, really uh, different from the other, but they all build on basics from earlier assignments. And, and really, that, that mirrors uh, my more or less 13 years in uh, telecom as well. I mean, uh, my job functions keep change, uh, keep changing. Um, it, being adaptable and learning to deal with adversity has certainly uh, helped me grow uh, and, and be successful, especially because a change doesn't normally happen on my agenda, my timeline. It's usually uh, forced from uh, outside of my my uh, my desired time frame. Uh, but but it's it's really important to be able to adjust to changes on the job, and then uh, more importantly, anticipate those changes uh, in order to continue to be successful. Um, you know, talking along the lines of change and challenge, you know, when, when I got back from Iraq in 2009, uh, I found adjustment back to the workplace uh, to be particularly challenging uh, for me on a personal level. Um, I, I didn't really get it at the time, but I was really going through, uh, you know, signs of uh, what ultimately would be classified as post-traumatic stress. Um, it, it's minimal for me. I haven't had the need for medication uh, counseling was all I needed to get my head right and then uh, drive on at work. Um, but really, when you get down to it, I felt alienated from my coworkers. I couldn't relate to them anymore. Um, I, I was hypervigilant about my surroundings. Going to the office was not a pleasurable experience for me, even after not seeing people for you know over a year. Uh, and, and I really didn't respond well to what I saw in others as a, a lack of focus and motivation. And again, after you know being in an environment where everything was a big deal, uh, because we're talking life and death in in, uh, in many cases if things weren't done properly. Um, you know, it, it really was, uh, there were a number of triggers there that caused me to uh, have challenges adjusting in the workplace. Um, and, and again, back to that adaptability, eventually I learned to cope and adapt to my, my new reality, uh, and I was able to continue to be effective at work. Um, and, and, you know, I would emphasize, you know, being flexible, being adaptable, uh, and really learning how to deal with adversity are attributes that, again, in the workplace are pretty good to have. Is that what you think made you successful? I mean, is there one thing? You've been very successful in your career. What, what would you attribute that to? Um, again, you know, the, the, the ability to, to flex, to uh, change in the environment. Um, you know, it, there's uh, the prioritization aspect that comes along with, uh, you know, managing workflow. And if, in my case, you know, I, I know that there are certain things I need to uh, prioritize in my day uh, as a result of my, uh, my post-traumatic stress uh, challenges uh, to, just to ensure that I have a, uh, a successful work day. Uh, you manage it on a day-to-day basis, and uh, you know th- that self-knowledge has really helped me, uh, you know, work effectively in uh, this environment. And um, AT and T, it seems as if they have a great culture um, that has allowed you to flourish. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. AT and T has been fantastic. Um, you know, on, on a couple different levels. Certainly, they've been uh, very accommodating for uh, you know my needs as I uh, returned home and went through reintegration. But in a, in a broader sense, you know, it, it's a type of business where I, it, 
I could reinvent myself every year and a half, two years if I wanted to. Uh, I want to try something else. You know, I, I, I like doing what I'm doing, but let me let me see what's over here. And we, we've got enough uh, career functions and job functions out there where that's a very very true reality. Um, I mean, I, I've gone from uh, uh, customer care and uh, back office support to uh, uh, strategic planning and done some supply chain management in there, uh, uh, QA and audit, as well as. Uh, um, social media uh, strategy, and uh, most recently working on uh, uh, recruiting and uh, uh, employment marketing. So I'm really, I've really had a, a very broad and uh, uh, rich career here so far. And, and I really respect that with AT and T, that especially reaching out to the disability community. In this case, including veterans with disabilities. Um, I feel that is the mark of a great company when you do that. And if someone would want to apply to AT&T, should they just go to the website? Yes, yes. Uh, so the, the most effective way to get uh, get through to AT&T for uh, looking for a career is to hit our, uh, our careers page, so uh, www.att.jobs. Uh, from there, you can explore all of our uh, different career paths as well as uh, look for uh, specific career options. Uh, and we have a number of testimonials as well as uh, preparation guides for uh, anybody who wants to come join the team. Uh, I kind of on my military uh, uh, on my military pitch. Uh, typically, what I'll tell people is we uh, we recruit and fill in every job category except for cook was kind of my old pitch. Uh, and then I learned fairly recently that we have chefs that work out of our our headquarters in Dallas. So uh, really, uh, <laughs> if you've done it, uh, we can employ you. If you want to do it, we can employ you. Uh, we're, we're just that broad a, a company in terms of uh, what we do. Okay, what's that website again? It's uh, www.att.jobs, J-O-B-S. Okay, there you heard it. If you know of someone seeking employment, if you know someone in the, a veteran, if you know a veteran with a disability, well, well, no matter who it is, but listen, people in the disability community, here's a company that will include you, so don't forget about it. So, Chris, you were a captain in the re- Army or Reserves, is that right? Uh, I'm actually a, a major in the Army Reserve at this point. Uh, I'm rolling up on, uh, coming up on 17 years here uh, pretty wow. soon. So, uh, wow, okay. Yeah, it, it, it's flown by. Well, Major Norton, thank you for serving this country. And, Joyce, thanks so much for having me on. And, listen, we end the show always with a quote from a great leader who impacted our country in some way. And fitting today is this quote from Eleanor Roosevelt who said, you gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You must do the thing which you think you cannot do which is exactly what Chris was talking about. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.